0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: I'm afraid I'll have to leave that bit of nostalgia there for another day, thanks to Acting Up for their first program I'm sure there's going to be lots more. It's just after four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. Today, what are the plans for nuclear power here in Australia? I'll be speaking to Dr. Margie Beavis, the National Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Coral Winter at the Coalface in Northern Queensland. What was in the letter the Moroccan Embassy sent to Sydney University regarding Western Sahara? Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association has the letter. Why we must support Julian Assange, speaking with activist Jacob Gregg. US nurse Sarah Ball, visiting Afghanistan. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy.
2: A week, Jane Listener, when sadly we have to report that anarchy is running riot in the streets of Melbourne yet again. Well, the streets of every city in True Blue Aussie, well, well the streets of most major cities around the world, round the globe, out of control anarchy, disrupting people going about their lawful business with tactics that have the... Oh, sorry, the uh, forces of law and order confused. not that that 's a major challenge, but all over this relentless claim that the climate is changing, the globe they are disrupting is being disrupted fatally, disrupted by resourceful people who should be admired, not condemned. Climate criminals, this anarch- anarchist lot keep telling us Thankfully, they, the resourceful people, are admired in the circles that matter. corporations providing the world 's energy. When, if the climate was changing, if there was a threat, would Big Supremo scuttle or Lash Sun cuddle a lump of beautiful coal in Parliament and taught the warmest? After all, he is concerned about plastic, plastic wrapping over the environment. Would the Minister for Pollution and Gas Tailings insist on keeping coal-fired power stations open forever, or for as long as forever is for, or, or whatever, if, of course not. In fact, Angas said, direct quote, My greatest fear is the early closure of coal fired power stations. And come on, if that posed a serious threat to the future of the human race and the flora and fauna with which the human race shares the planet and treats so carefully, would so responsible a man as Angas pursue so suicidal a policy? Of course not. The irresponsible Hermos Gracious Majesty's Queen, Queensland Socialist Government, praised for responsibly approving the Adani the Planet coal mine, has lost all its accumulated brownie points by announcing it would close a 700 megawatt coal-fired station 10 years earlier than planned, 2028 instead of 2038, only pumping out beautiful coal-fired harmless pollution for another 10 or so years causing poor gas to reach for the smelling salts after which largely recovered he promised the government would do all it could to prevent fossils being squeezed out of the energy market pushing baseload generation out prematurely or without a plan for like-for-like replacement is very dangerous he said and when you say like-for-like like, gas, do you mean replace coal with coal? Well, that's as like for like as you can get, and everyone knows what I like. So in the light of all that, the fading light of all that, what do these anarchists think they're doing? Not that it matters. This is a government meeting its climate commitments in a canter. And scuttle them in and gas and the team are certainly committed. While those disruptive lots preventing good law-abiding citizens going about their lawful business claim, they should be committed for murdering the planet. What nonsense. OK, OK, our pollution continues to climb by the year, but don't panic. They've got it under control. Truth from them and Angas and Truth in Advertising, one of those ubiquitous ads for so-called weight loss programs where they provide the pre-prepared food, offering all sorts of apparent savings, but with the very quick, listen carefully or you might miss it, rider, cost of food extra which is the big rip as I imagine they must charge about $20 a kilo for something you could buy yourself for about $2. And in this ad, a happy, happy losing weight customer gushes, everything's done for you, you don't have to think about it. And I thought, there's truth in advertising, because if you thought about it, you wouldn't give them your hard-earned in the first place the that appalling hoon please explain award of the week to the rugby official after claims a grand final umpire that they call them referees decision may have cost the loser the game he made the correct decision but in the wrong direction <laughs> rugby official your that appalling hoon please explain award is on its way Although Scuttle then made a bold bid for the award with direct quote True Blue Aussie sovereignty is at risk from a negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill defined borderless global community and worse still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy aimed ironically at winning the hardened heart of that appalling hoon son, even if she couldn't understand a word of what he said. I'm not sure he understood it. Then again, someone should explain to US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, what impeachment means as he called for a senator from his own party to be impeached for criticising him, which Donald declared was treason, the worst treason ever, ever showing the explanation should also include the meaning of treason. For balance, he's also called for a couple of Democrats to be impeached as well, thereby not clarifying his ignorance of the word or at least its meaning, but those Donald demands be impeached must pay for their disloyalty to him and therefore to the U.S. of... Treason! For Donald puts great weight on loyalty. Like to the Kurds who allied with Donald and the USOV to defeat IS in Northern Syria. The Kurds have been very loyal to me, best very loyal ever, ever. But the job they were employed to do is done and sadly, at USOV Inc, we have to let them go. You're fired. Biggest, you're fired ever, ever. After all, there is no Trump will travel the poor tower in the Kurd non-country, greatest ever Trump will travel the poor tower, whereas in Istanbul. Speaking of plutocracy, big economic guru Josh M. Iceberg showed his and the government's financial commitment and strength and power by demanding the usual suspect big banks pass on the latest interest rate cut in full. He didn't want them to rip people off, he said, which is a bit rough, given that's the only reason they exist, and shows what an economic guru Josh is, but gee, what a surprise. The usual suspect, big banks, told Josh to get stuffed, explained they couldn't cut interest rates, well, why explain, they just didn't, but clearly they were forced to retain some of the cut to meet the cutting the interest rate fee, which good news for the struggling banks, the way interest rates are going will soon exceed the rate cuts so with every cut the banks will be forced reluctantly to increase interest rates by the difference between the one and the absolutely necessary fee these are financial truths that josh doesn't seem able to grasp yesterday direct quote banks should never make their profits at the expense of their customers (laughs) then josh how else are they going to make them the worry is He's the treasurer. Uh, yet when rates do go up, you put them up two days earlier by more than the increase, uh, we ask the usual suspect banks. Yes, yes, very considerate. It gives our cherished victim, uh, uh, sorry, customers, cherished customers time to adjust and two days to become aware they will also be liable for the increasing the rate fee. Josh warned the banks that next time they ignored him, he would get really tough with them. Really, really tough. And we have shown with the evil trade union movement how tough we can get. He had the bank boardroom shaking in their Swiss leather shoes. As a conciliatory measure, they passed resolutions thanking the government for getting tough on evil unions. True Blue also getting tough on evil Iranians, breaking the US unilateral world laws, jailing Reza Dabashi an Iranian scientist studying in True Blue for 13 months, that's 13 months in jail, pending packing him off to the US to face the full force of the unilateral world law, banning anyone doing any business with evil Iran, but then two days after two True Blue were released by evil Iran for what at face value seems to have been naively flying a drone over the wrong spot, Reza Dabashi was packed off to evil Iran, despite the fact he had been doing, absolutely more than obviously more than 13 months ago, doing business, well it's a crime, allegedly doing business with his native country, contrary to US of unilateral world law. Yet our Attorney General Christian Pottham and Minister for US Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne for Workers, assure us there is no connection between these two events, and we've already talked of our respect for... In government, but we've also talked of the US OFS and of Donald's hatred of disloyalty. So, what will they, he, think about disloyalty in not sending this evil criminal, alleged evil criminal, to face the full wrath of US OF unilateral world war? Worst disloyalty ever, ever. And Donald's offsider of Mike Dollars and Pence has also been in the news, as submissions are made over True Blue Aussies proposed Dear Baby Jesus Freedom Bill, with Mike's progressive policies in Iowa, when he was governor, being quoted as an example. But sadly, by these anti-Dear Baby Jesus people who claim, claim, Mike's love the Dear Baby Jesus law, how's this for distorting a truly God-fearing man's intentions, made it easier for gays and lesbians to be refused service, risked social, economic and political consequences by favouring the rights of one group over another showing not that Mike was wrong in upholding what the dear baby Jesus wants but how these sinful, sinful people have triggered the need for a bill to protect decent, God-fearing people here like Erica bets on the bosses and Tiny a bit more for the bosses and Kevin and Screws the workers and other fun, fun, fun people Finally, the only problem with this bill is they still haven't worked out how to protect the lovers of the dear baby Jesus without including all those pagan religions that don't love the dear baby Jesus. If you've got an answer, listener, they'd love to hear from you. Good afternoon.
1: And for more of Mr Kevin Healy, it's 9 o'clock tomorrow morning on City Limits. Surprise, surprise, as it works on its energy policy, the Federal Government is canvassing the possibility of Australia adopting nuclear power And last week, a parliamentary inquiry in Adelaide heard a wide range of views on the viability of nuclear energy. One of those views was that of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and its National Secretary, Dr Margie Beavis, prepared a submission and presented it to the inquiry. I asked Margie first how it went, who the people there were and where they came from.
3: We had six MPs from government and then I was sitting on the panel with uh, Jim Green from Friends of the Earth, Tillman Ruff from ICAN the International Campaign to Abolish Negree Weapons and Dave Sweeney also called in by a phone link and was also a very strong contributor.
1: And what was the format?
3: The format was we had about an hour and a half and we each gave a short five to ten minute talk about what we thought was the major issues with Nuclear Energy for Australia, and then they asked us questions. And it was really very good in that they were interested. There wasn't too much political questioning or political grandstanding, which was great. And I hope they listened. I hope they understood what we were saying, because it's really so clear that the small modular reactors, which is sort of flavor of the month, are very... Very expensive. There's no. When we talk about small modular reactors, they say these are going to be cheap and fast to install. When in fact, the only reason they would be cheap is if there was many, many being made in a factory, and that's not happening anywhere in the world. Um, in South America, which is probably the most advanced country in terms of trying to um, get these to be that, they've blown out to be so costly that it's probably about four times the cost of a similar setting up a similar amount of energy using renewables with storage. And, and it just, it's just such a foolish undertaking on so many levels. I mean, it would take about 15 to 20 years if you are being really optimistic for this to get up in Australia. So that's 15 or 20 years of massive subsidies to get them to happen, huge community opposition. I mean, a lot of people don't realise that within five kilometres of a nuclear power plant, rates of leukaemia for children are doubled, rates of cancer almost doubled, and that Increased increased health risk extends up to 50 kilometres from a power plant. Getting nuclear power requires such enormous subsidies that, well, firstly, there's no private enterprise who's proposing to build them anywhere in the world. They will only do it with enormous government subsidies. But if Australia chose to go down this path, our neighbours would be seriously concerned that we are actually thinking about getting nuclear weapons because the main reason that, or the main way countries get nuclear weapons is through Waste products that come out of their nuclear power plants, and it would be such an extraordinary step. So obviously, the wrong thing to do in terms of reducing emissions. that we would have to have some underlying motivation. So, and Ruff made a very powerful case that really, if Australia were to go down the nuclear energy path, our neighbours would be seriously wondering whether we're also going down the nuclear weapons path, and what that, that may have problems in sparking the regional nuclear arms process, arms race, if you like. But the thing that Jim Green pointed out loud and clear was not only is this incredibly expensive and needs huge subsidies; it's too slow, and it is really pretty unrealistic that they're they they're getting sold something. I think in in the technology trade they talk about vaporware, which is things which are terrific on paper but don't actually exist in reality. And small and modular reactors are in fact pretty close to vaporware.
1: Well, when they say small modular reactor, what do they mean by small?
3: They mean they're about a tenth the size of a, a standard nuclear reactor. So in terms of generating electricity, they're cheaper to build because they're much smaller. The problem is once you start making the electricity, because um, with a big nuclear power plant, you get economies of scale. So when you start to generate power, that's probably the cheapest way. So the cost there's two costs. There's a the cost of building it and then there's cost of generating the power. In terms of building, obviously a smaller thing is cheaper to build than a larger thing. But once you start generating the power, it's much more expensive because it's not actually got the economies of scale that the larger plants have. That said, the myth that nuclear energy is clean is also one that the industry proponents really push hard when, in fact, for it to be clean, you only take just one section of the energy generation. If you look at it, from cradle to grave. In other words, from the time you have to dig up the uranium, from the time you have to make the fuel suitable for it to go into a reactor, you look at the gases from that, and then you look at the gases from building the reactor, then the gases from decommissioning the reactor, then the gases from storing the waste for sort of 10,000 years, which is a whole other ethical, imponderable, that you can't store this waste cleanly for 10,000 years and keep it away from people but it is highly toxic. If you look at all the greenhouse gases from those steps, nuclear is pretty close to gas in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So the the whole ostensible looking into nuclear was to provide a clean energy source. It's too slow, too expensive, it's too dirty, it's too dangerous. It just makes no sense on any of those levels.
1: Well, how did the proponents argue against this, against your point of view?
3: They give very unrealistic cost estimates. They, they say that it's going to cost, you know, they, it, they say that it's much cheaper. They don't talk about the greenhouse emissions, gas emissions of mining, or making the fuel so that it can go into the thing. And they certainly don't talk about what the heck we're going to do with the waste. I mean, you only have to look at poor old South Australia. There's two communities about to have a ballot on whether they'll take Australia's very modest amount of intermediate level waste. Well, if we had a nuclear reactor, we'd have many, much more waste And it would be even more toxic because we would have high level waste which has to be safeguarded and which is really, as I said, a major problem for 10,000 to 100,000 years to keep it out of the water supply and to keep it away. And really, if you think about it, the pharaohs in Egypt were around 5,000 years ago. So to pretend that it's a clean energy source when you've got a highly toxic end product that has to be kept clear, kept out of the water supply for so many generations. It's, it's really just marketing spin.
1: The composition of the people who were asking the questions, who, who was there?
3: There were three members from the Liberal, Liberal National Party, two from Labor and then also Zali Stegall, who's the Independent. So it was relatively, it didn't look to be sort of heavily stacked one way or the other. It will be very interesting to see how they come out I think there has been an enormous amount of lobbying that the nuclear power industry and the nuclear industry itself is very persuasive. They, one of the things they bang on about is, is that we have so much uranium. Well, We also have an awful lot of asbestos, but we don't run around wanting to mine our asbestos because we know that is a really damaging product to people. And I think uranium also is a hugely damaging product. It either ends up, by the time you've used uranium, it either ends up as nuclear waste or nuclear fallout, or nuclear weapons. So those are the three choices you have when we mine uranium, and to pretend otherwise is foolishness. And so for people to try and justify this by saying we have a whole lot of uranium we should be using, well, actually, we should have a whole lot of asbestos as well, and we're choosing not to use that, and we should be choosing not to use the uranium as well.
1: Where is the push coming from for these reactors? Is it the industry, or is it further than that? That's a very
3: interesting question. I think there's probably multiple pushes. I think there is a certainly a very strong industry push. The the nuclear power industry in America, for years, having said we have nothing to do with nuclear weapons, have now recognized that they're so desperate in need of funding that they're actually saying, actually, you need us because you've got nuclear weapons and you have to keep this industry going so you have enough manpower and enough source of materials and source of expertise. I think there's a combination. I think there is a a section in, in the government that thinks nuclear weapons might be a bad idea to think about they don't recognize that if Australia got nuclear weapons then this would sort of definitely unleash an arms race and we've got sort of Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates all sort of raring to go and really it's only sort of the general restraint in the nuclear non-proliferation treaty that's stopping nuclear weapons proliferation and Australia was foolish enough to think that it was a good idea to get nuclear weapons in countries like Indonesia and the Philippines and Singapore would all start looking at it it would be a complete act of foolishness
1: and really destabilise things and make the world a much more dangerous place. Are you aware where reports back to Parliament, the time frame? It's
3: pretty quick. It's, it's had its last hearings last week. I'm not sure but I think it will probably be within a couple of months. What's depressing is that New South Wales is having a hearing into nuclear power and Victoria is also to, at the bidding of the sole liberal democrat has decided it needs an inquiry into nuclear power and it's such a waste of time it's such a they should be looking at at the moment what they should be doing in terms of climate change is looking really hard at the fact that all the coal fired or a lot of the coal fired generators are very old you can't keep running a 1950s or 1960s holden endlessly you can't keep running 1960s power generators endlessly and we desperately need really good renewable energy investment and storage investment because they're going to need to have this sort of firmed up so that the grid is stable. And at the moment there's a slight sort of head in the sand. I think, I think really this whole nuclear push is actually a political distraction from the lack of good energy policy.
1: And this is just the federal government. And you do have any idea what the Labor Party is thinking on this issue as well?
3: I think the Labour Party is opposed. They've come out saying that they think nuclear power is a bad idea, but that hasn't stopped the Victorian Labour government supporting the motion from the Liberal Democrats. I suspect there may be some deal there, or they may also, like the federal government, want to distract from their energy policies.
1: Margie, take you back to January 2018 when the then Prime Minister Turnbull unveiled a new defence export strategy, setting out a policy and strategy to make Australia one of the world's top ten weapons exporters in the next decade. Selling only $1.5 to $2.5 billion in defence exports, wanted the value to increase significantly. Fast forward to September 2019, the report shows the push to make Australia a top 10 exporter appears to be faltering, suggesting instead the country has become one of the world's largest arms importers, second only to Saudi Arabia.
3: One of the top 10 weapons manufacturers was extremely foolish, extremely desperate politics. When you look at the jobs, I mean, they justify everything in terms of jobs and growth. If you look actually at the research that's been done internationally looking at if you spend money on defence industry versus spending money on health or education or infrastructure or clean energy, health and education, you'll get twice as many jobs if you spend in those fields. If you spend in, in clean energy, so wind, solar and retrofits, it's about one and a half times as many jobs. For infrastructure, it's about one and a half times as many jobs. I mean, this is a piece of foolishness and what really... Again, you really do wonder, the advantage of weapons manufacturers is that they can set up in certain political electorates. So for instance, I think a lot of the submarine push to buy the French submarine was all about jobs in South Australia after they failed to keep supporting the car industry. So spending 50 billion on a submarine that hasn't yet to be designed, this submarine is like something out of Yes Minister or Utopia in that this submarine is still to be designed. It's going to come off the production line in 2034. They're saying they're going to keep building them till 2045. And the most farcical thing of all is that they say they're still going to be in service till 2070. Now, if you think something that's designed in 2020 is still going to be in service and effective in terms of giving Australia self-reliance in defence 50 years after it's designed and, and then you know, 40 years after it's built. I think that's a nonsense, and clearly a nonsense. And the other thing is that in this world of sort of unmanned underwater vehicles and drones and increasing technology, in that sense, submarines may not be the right thing to build anyway. With our existing submarines, we can't get enough military personnel to man them. They're so horrible to be in that they, they run, I think, I think we currently run two less submarines than we want to. We deploy two less submarines than we want to because we can't get the crews so there's a sort of feeling of, of why are we doing this and the, at the risk of sounding a bit cynical i think the why we are doing this is because people want to win elections and to commit to 50 billion to win an election is is pretty uh, reprehensible
1: i don't think it's an exaggeration margie to say that the world is drowning in weapons
3: yes well what's interesting when you looked at the australian weapons exports going back to the top 10 CIPRI, which is a terrific resource for your listeners if they want to find out anything about weaponry and global stuff, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute SIPRI is a tremendous resource and they look at all the different measures and in terms of exports, Australia has gone backwards from 18th to 25th in the world and that's not because we haven't increased our exports, it's because our competitors have increased their exports more so yes, you're absolutely right, we're drowning in weapons Donald Trump earlier this year in was April, March or April was at a National Rifleman's Association rally at that rally he announced that America was withdrawing from the arms trade treaty which is just appalling and because the National Rifleman's Association is really sponsored by all the weapons manufacturers and the National Riflesmen Association gave Donald Trump over $30 million for his campaign and remember when Donald Trump was the candidate he was, not looking, he was looking pretty much a long shot but they still gave him $30 million so they clearly have a friend in Donald Trump and the Arms Trade Treaty, they say, is international arms control and, and criticise on that behalf, or we think the Arms Trade Treaty is international arms control and desperately needed.
1: Finally, Margie, what's the progress on the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons?
3: Oh, well, we've had terrific um, progress. It was really... Uh, Splendid. We had, we've had a whole lot more signatories and ratifications come in. So as people from O to get the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that was adopted by the United Nations in 2017, for it to become international law, in other words, for nuclear weapons to become legally the same as chemical weapons or biological weapons, we need 50 ratifications. And a ratification is where a government has send it through their parliament or whatever that equivalent is and they voted in favour. So we are very pleased because we are now up to 79 signatories, but 79 countries have signed to say that they will adopt this treaty and pass it through their parliament. And so far, 32, we've got another six, I think, in the last month, 32 have ratified, it. so it's gone through 32 parliaments. So we're very close to two-thirds of the way there, which is pretty much the same speed that a lot of other similar treaties have gone and we're really hopeful that either by the end of 2020 or early 2021 we'll have the 50 and this treaty will become international law and that's really hopeful because by stigmatizing these weapons and making them to stop being a source of political pride and recognize that they're a huge humanitarian threat it it will really change how money changes hands how superannuation funds invest how military people look at using them. So we're really very delighted with the recent progress and look forward to it steadily moving towards international law.
1: Given up on Australia?
3: No, no, no. If people want to help us, go to the ICAN Australia, just Google ICAN Australia. We have the Cities Appeal. So basically, what given that the Federal Government is not really, to say the least, in favour of this treaty and it has been actively undermining it, go to the website, have a look at the ICAN Cities Appeal. And then talk to your local councillor about their, your local council signing up for the city to the city's appeal because having local councils advocate to the federal government is, is really powerful and we have already 22 local councils, including Sydney and Melbourne, the city, the city of Sydney and Melbourne, who have said to the federal government, you know, as councils, we have a responsibility to, respect, to protect our citizens. Nuclear weapons are an existential threat and probably like climate change, a huge existential threat climate-wise as well, given the nuclear winter that would follow a small nuclear war. So if people want to do something, go for it. Go to the ICANN Australia website, click on the City's Appeal, and then talk to your local council. Talk to your, local, talk to your neighbours as well and get them to talk to the councillors, because that's how it's done. It's by getting a few people together from local areas, and we're, we've just launched this earlier this year, and it's going really well. OK, thanks, Maggie. Thank you, Jan. <laughs> thanks for the opportunity.
1: And lots to do. That's Dr. Margie Beavers, who's the National Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. This is 3CR. It's 4.31.
0: For 45 years, Friends of the Earth has been mobilising communities to resist the destructive industries like coal, gas, nuclear, and to transform our world into somewhere better. Come celebrate with us as we celebrate 45 years of creative resistance. 25th of October at the Gasometer, doors open at 8pm with a welcome to country at 9pm. The line-up includes Alicia Joy, Hello Tut Tut, Mortisville, Claddy, And more. You know it'll be fun because it's Friends of the Earth. See you there. You can get tickets online or at our famous food co-op at 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. Friends of the Earth are a proud supporter of 3CR.
1: From the Galilee Basin in central Queensland to northern western New South Wales, it's been a busy and inspiring month for activist Coral Winter. Today we begin with the week at the frontline action on coal protest camp near Bowen. I asked Carl first how that journey began.
4: You can uh, fly into Proserpine, and then there's a, an hour and a half trip to past Bowen, and uh, there's a farm where there's um, where you can stay.
1: What's the country like?
4: Oh, it's so dry. There's a few trees about, but it's really, really dry, very little water. Where, a farm where we stayed at, I went down to the riverbed and there's nothing. It's absolutely bone dry, but I think it only gets it in a bit of a flood, but, yeah, that was just bone dry.
1: What does the camp consist of? How is it managed? How is it organised?
4: I think a group of people have bought the farm. It was a farm it must have been cattle on it before, and so it was for sale a farmhouse on it and um people have put up a it, it's organized by frontline action against coal so they've set up a huge tent where or huge meeting place that's where we conduct you know sort of community meetings and it's really well organized there's a committee for a, a water crew hot water crew <laughs> a shopping team for supplies a legal team and a media team and a gardening team and a research team for what's happening at their darning mine and the first aid team so you know it was really really well organized and there's also a group that um, an induction team that show you around and show you where the showers are and the toilets and um, how things operate H- whose land is it on well it's on um berry land the clan there that owns it original first nation owners of the land are uh, the berry people of the Gubba nation, and they have sovereignty over the camp
1: and what's yeah. the connection between the aboriginal communities and the outsiders who come in to help
4: yeah you know, they're very welcomed by uh, the Bury people we had quite a few aboriginal elders at the um camp and the Adani c- uh, camp at that time when i was there and also younger um aboriginal um, activists who'd come up from melbourne There were people from all over the state, uh, all over Australia. There was probably about 30 or 40 people there when I was there and they have had up to 70 people to come to the um, protest camp.
1: What are the rules of engagement if you do go outside that camp?
4: Well, you have to undergo um, training in non-violent direct action. That takes about five hours. It's quite intensive, so you know... What you can do and what you can't do, and what your legal rights are, what your obligations are, and you don't really want to get arrested because it's a process of having to go to court and and coming back to the township to appear at, in the court, and they've usually been finding people about fifteen hundred dollars. You know, mainly to go there, and they have. Well, what we did is we went out to Townsville in one trip. Which was about um, two hours two hours away, and we processed it outside. We held banners and, and, um, and um, posters outside two companies that are supplying pipes to Adani, to the Adani mine, to, and, and blocked the gates, entrance of the gates, so um, trucks couldn't get in and trucks couldn't get out.
1: I imagine you wouldn't have been too popular?
4: No, it's surprising. All those towns up there, they think they're going to get hundreds of jobs or the mine is going to bring in a huge number of people in which they will spend money there. But, you know, there'll be just a few people in, during construction and then a few security jobs, of course. And then um, after that, the whole, that whole of Duny Mine is going to be totally automated. It's open cut. They've got those huge, massive trucks. You know, there may be like, few hundred jobs at the most but people in air townsville and the whole um and bowen think they're going to be um it's going to save the towns and save the whole employment problem but it's a it's a total lie you know this won't happen so there was a lot of hostility in townsville
1: what about at the gate i did read that there was nearly an accident
4: yes well the first plant we went to is iPlex which is supplying pipes to the Adani mine. We'd been there before so that when we sort of closed the four gates with a a puppet and and our banners uh, the security people were used to it and they just stopped working, the workers didn't mind and we just stopped the vans going in for about two or three hours until the police come. But the second one was much more harrowing. We went to Another pipe supplying plant called Vinodex. This is all in the industrial area of Townsville. A truck driver with a huge semi-trailers, he drove past, it was empty, but he drove past and then saw these banners and he must have had a, um a, a, I don't know, a stroke or something or, or a, a fit. And he drove, turned around, did a U-turn right in front of us on the verge. It was quite a wide verge of the road. And drove straight out the gate where six women were holding a banner. And banging his horn um, and then inched forward even closer to them. So he's, he's touching, the bull bars are touching their chest. And yelling obscenities, screaming and yelling, all sorts of obscenities. And then finally getting out of the truck eventually and saying he's going to get one of us sometime you know it was sort of unreal but it was really dangerous it was an act of terrorism really it could have murdered several women on the on the holding there on the gate and he got out and he was sort of shaking and sweating and and still swearing but you think he was on some sort of drugs the way his reaction and it was just over the top it took about an hour before the police came they didn't want to breathalyze him but we've uh, forced we kept saying he's, that he's got to be breathalyzed And then the policeman did it round the back of the truck and then took the, you know, that paper container which holds it and put it back in his pocket so we didn't see what the result was. The police stopped our person filming the whole incident and banished him from the site. And, yeah, it was really, really scary. I mean, it was an insane reaction. And then because the truck, the semi trailer blocked that half of this main highway, all the other cars coming off the roundabout had to go around him. And then one or two cars even had the temerity to dr- also drive at us, then swerve away, the cowards they are. And then another driver also targeted, because we had a land rights flag, also targeted our Aboriginal activist, the yelling obscenity. So that was really quite uh, horrendous.
1: When did you go back to the outback?
4: We then had another long discussion the next day at the camp, to work out what we were going to do to protest the Adani mine. So we then, on um, one of the days, we t- had to leave at about midnight <laughs> at night and drive about five and a half hours out to the workers' camp at the Adani mine. We didn't actually get to the Adani mine, but so we went to the workers' camp to try and block it at 6 a.m. when the workers changed their shifts. They were used to us as well and um, the security guards just kept their eye on us and they flew over a um, drone to see what we were doing. Um, But we just had banners there at two of the main gates. And we were lucky enough to we stopped two trucks from coming in and we talked to the driver of one of the laundry trucks who was picking up their laundry from the workers' camp and um, convinced him that it wasn't worth what he was doing. So, but but anyway, they had another gate at the back that we didn't realise, in which all the drivers, the car, the workers, drove out to finish their shift at the back of it. But anyway, we felt that was still useful to have that protest. We held them up for about four hours or so, because four or five hours, because the police have to come from Claremont to give us a warning and ask us to leave and otherwise, you know, you'll be arrested. So when it comes to that point, they ask you, they give you specific instructions. You can't come back to the site for 24 hours or so and you have to be leave immediately in, in, within 60 kilometres of the site. And so that was it and we left. But it's very important. The whole thing is it's very important to stop the Adani mine. It's still in the front line of the stopping coal mining, because if that goes ahead, then all the other coal mines in the Galilee Basin will will start up as well. So it's really, really important. And I really uh, urge would go up to to Bowen uh, or Cross the Pine. You can drive up there, it's a bit of a drive, and contact, first of all, Frontline Action Against Coal to help out. You know, they need all sorts of help. You don't have to put your life on the line. You know, they just need people to help. With the camp and, and with, I mean, with the, um, and with the, uh, on the farm and the, the Andy Dali camp. Yeah, it's it's very important. they sort of, they put out frontline action against coal, oh, put out a red alert not so long ago because they're already beginning to um, start up the mine. They're clearing the land in that area. And as you know, the Labor government, Pavlashak, has given, has removed Native Title Act to, the Wangam people over this mine. So it's a pretty dire situation.
1: And it's Coral Winter, Socialist Alliance activist, and we'll be hearing more about the trip to the Bowen area next week. Also her trip to the rivers in central New South Wales, the rivers that are no longer flowing, and we'll find out why. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. In the studio with me after a very successful September is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association Association and was speaking about the very successful tour of Tekbar Amensala Salah to Australia. Focus first, Kate, on the attempted silencing of her at the University of Sydney, which backfired as the event was successfully transferred to the University of Technology on the same night. Justified, it would appear, uh, charges of foreign interference by the Moroccan embassy in the form of a letter to the university, You've seen that letter. What does it say? Moroccan
5: ambassador wrote to the Sydney Centre for International Law, Dear Professors, I write to you regarding the event sponsored by the Sydney Centre for International Law, titled Africa's Last Colony, Human Rights and the Decolonisation Process in Western Sahara. In this regard, I understand the academic interest the Centre might have in this topic, However, I would like to draw your attention on the biased way in which it is presented on your website. Firstly, the repeated use of their words colonisation and occupation is totally inaccurate and highly offensive. Not a single body of the UN, neither the resolutions of the General Assembly or the Security Council, qualifies Morocco as an occupying power. Secondly, the partial reading of the consultative opinion of the international law of justice obliterates the second half of the court's answer to the two questions that were raised by the General Assembly and forgets to mention that the court recognised the, quote, existence at the time of Spanish colonisation of legal ties of allegiance between the Sultan of Morocco and the tribes living in the territory of Western Sahara, Finally, I wish to point to the fact that this event will be used as a propaganda tool by the Polisario Separatist Movement, which does not represent the Sahrawi population living in the Moroccan part of the territory. I also find it doubtful that this seminar will tackle the situation of human rights in the camps of Tindouf. Neither will it discuss the proven abuses in these camps, nor the serious crimes in which the Polisario is involved in, such as human trafficking and slavery, an embezzlement of humanitarian aid. I sincerely hope that the prestigious Sydney Centre for International Law will keep this event from being used as propaganda and that it can find its way to balance the information that will be diffused through the seminar. Indeed, the Sahara issue is of the utmost importance to the entire Moroccan nation. I remain at your disposal for any further explanation or clarification needed and he signs that uh, as the ambassador, Karim Medric.
1: There's a lot of issues there, Kate?
5: A lot, yes. How much of it's true? Well, it's certainly true that the Moroccans are very sensitive about the use of the words colonisation and occupation. This expression by the Secretary-General of the UN led to their banning of the UN mission, MINURSO a few years ago. They... have Slowly come back again, but not I think not all of them and it 's not entirely true to say that there 's no u n document that uses these words because in two thousand and two, Hans Corell, the legal counsel of the Secretary general, issued a statement a, uh, a legal opinion on the position of prospectors for oil off the coast of Western Sahara in that very interesting letter that he wrote he explains that Spain is actually still officially legally the administering power of Western Sahara although they undertook a so-called tripartite agreement with Morocco and Mauritania in 1976 it has no legal standing that tripartite agreement and the Madrid Accords, also known as the Madrid Accords. Mauritania pulled out of it anyway. He says that Spain was not able to relinquish its role that way. It had to do it through the standard way of decolonizing through an act of self-determination by the Sahrawi people who themselves are the only sovereign of the current country. That shows that that isn't actually quite true, although it's what they actually say, uh, different um, bodies. And it's also not true that the uh, General Assembly and the uh, Security Council have never used those expressions, because they have. It is true that not for a long time, because Morocco's, uh, every time they try to do it, uh, Morocco lobbies them to take it out of the report. That's why they they want to insist that it never happened because they work very hard to make sure it doesn't happen. In a sense, it is being used as a propaganda tool because we do certainly want the the position of the Sahrawi people to be known in Australia. We don't want only the Moroccan interpretation of the position of the Sahrawis to be known. So if you call that propaganda, then in that sense it was definitely had, a, had our um, invitation to Tekpa to come and do a tour, a speaking tour, including this talk at uh, Sydney, was part of trying to raise awareness among the whole of uh, Australian population as to um, what is going on, both in the occupied part and in the camps. And then they get, he gets on to the situation regarding human rights in the camps of Tindouf—that That is something that they always retaliate with when human rights in the occupied territory, I continue to use the expression occupied territory, are raised. They say, oh, but there's also happening in Tindouf." There's a lot of claims there, though, from slavery to... Yes, slavery and human trafficking. Now, the human trafficking I don't think there's anything in that claim but it is something they are constantly trying to pin on the Polisario or the people in the camps because they are close to, you know, they're physically close, closer to some of the groups in the Sahel and the Sahara and those countries which are possibly dealing in human trafficking they have been in you know, a very disgraceful Incidents where the Moroccans have taken some of the asylum seekers who have turned up to try and get through to Europe. They've put them across the wall into Western Sahara Territory and they've left them without papers, without water, without food and they've been picked up by the UN Minoso outposts. One t- incident I can remember years ago now that included people from Pakistan and Afghanistan who had somehow got themselves through to Egypt and come across Africa and I don't know quite why they'd ended up in Morocco instead of crossing somewhere else but that's what they'd done and these people were being looked after by the Sahrawi military until they could be rescued but the whole idea was to make it appear that the Sahrawis had been involved, directly involved in in trafficking Slavery, well, we've dealt with that a long time ago. They're still trying to make that mud stick. In uh, 2009, an Australian filmmaker went to the camps and she decided that there was slavery happening. Indeed, there used to be, traditionally, way back before the Polisario was founded. And that's perfectly true, that that is how the black African element in the Sahrawi population came to be there. But the Polisario immediately instigated a, uh, uh, in, in their, uh, made their constitution that everybody was equal and everybody had exactly the same rights and privileges and duties as everybody else in the Sahrawi population and that uh, slavery should not be practised at all. So officially it doesn't exist whether it ever has. We all know social changes of this kind can take a long time and there may well have been some incidents of people trying to have control over other members of the family, over who they might marry, for example, and things like that. Embezzlement of human uh, humanitarian aid, that's another one that they always try to bring up, because if they could, they would starve out the refugees in the camps, try and stop all humanitarian aid. They need it, of course. That's the only way that they can survive. And as we've heard from Tekpa, they're not really even quite surviving. There's a lot of, over all these years, of living on very basic supplies and very little fresh food. Uh, there are a lot of deficiencies in their systems. The children are very small. I think they're naturally quite a small-ish race, but they uh, are not growing in the way that what would one would expect uh, with a normal diet and normal circumstances. It's true that they, uh, there is a problem with the aid. And and the Moroccans, I mean, there's several things that they try to do. One is to deny that the number of people is exact, that they're getting aid for too many people. That has been corroborated several times, and the latest census that they conducted said there were 173,000 people in the camps that are deserving of humanitarian aid. They don't support the military, for example. They certainly give more support to the needy categories which are old people and pregnant women and maybe children, I'm not quite sure. So there are adults there who are not probably getting the full quota or perhaps they all have less because those people aren't given the same amounts, uh, aren't catered for to the same extent. However, it's also true that oil oil drums with the... EU stars on them, have been found over the border in Mauritania or perhaps other parts. This is because when they get these very basic supplies of just oil and rice and other grains, maybe barley or wheat, lentils, you know, like about five of these very basic foodstuffs, they want something else that's traditional for them, like incense or or other foodstuffs, they take the oil that they've got, perhaps, you know, if that's how the oil... And they swap it because they haven't got currency and, or in the past they haven't had any currency, any, any money of their own. I think that that could account for one or two incidents where that has happened. It, it does need a bit of fact-checking, the, these claims.
1: Despite that, Kate, it was a very successful tour of Australia and now she's in New Zealand... Have you had any feedback from New Zealand yet? Not really.
5: I, I, I've, I've seen... Uh, Teppa herself has posted a photograph of herself. She's meeting myself uh, on the streets of Hamilton where there was a talk and there was this great big poster stuck onto something in the street and she's ta- uh, had a photograph taken of herself meeting herself.
1: So, yes, now I'd like to hear how, it, how it's actually going. And just to reiterate that Jacinda Ahern has actually been to the camps. Oh, yes, Jacinda. She
5: went to the camps as the leader of a delegation from international socialist conference or something like that. So, yes, she does know and, you know, she does a lot of good things, but she um, hasn't so far been prevailed upon to make a statement or do something that would solve this particular issue about the importation of phosphate from Western Sahara by the New Zealand farmers. Farming is clearly a very basic and essential part of the New Zealand economy. I can imagine that she's finding that a little bit tricky to negotiate, but we would hope that as a result of Tekpa's visit that there will be changes.
1: An amazing Western Saharan woman who works for human rights and self-determination has won yet another award? Yes, Aminatou Haidar. She's won something called the
5: Right Livelihood Award from Sweden, which people uh, designate as the alternative Nobel Prize. Some of the people think that there are much more worthy winners of this award than some of the people who've won Nobel Prize naming no names. She shared it with the teenager uh, Greta Thunberg and, and two others. So yes, this is another feather in her cap. She's, her work has been recognized worldwide now. She, despite her frailty because she suffered a lot through her advocacy for independence initially when she was a student along with a whole lot of others who came out to demonstrate in 1987 when the UN was first uh, contemplating setting up the mission and organizing a referendum they sent a, a mission to uh, investigate in the uh, Uh, occupied territory, and Aminatou Haidar and Brahim uh, Dahan and a number of others of that generation uh, all demonstrated to make sure that the UN mission understood that what the Sahrawis were wanting. They all got rounded up. They all got disappeared. No, Their families didn't know where they'd gone. Nothing was reported for years. Uh, when uh, Aisha Dahan, the sister of uh, Brahim, I just mentioned, when she came here, she explained in some detail in a video that's on our YouTube channel that you can see, the devastating effect that it had on that family to lose their, maybe their eldest or their, uh, well, I, think, I think it might be their eldest son, and not know what was happening. There's eight children or something in the family, a lot of children in the family. Some of them stopped going to school. They were all in depression. They, it had an, a, a disruptive effect on her schooling as well. She says that her mother still got tear marks on her face from the tears that she shed at, at that time. I can imagine that aminatus family were all going through the same thing at that time. She herself was suffering a lot of... Uh, different kinds of torture, electric shocks, beatings, rape, or threatens threats of rape, I'm not sure. Her eyes were blindfolded for very long periods, not the entire time, I think, but she, because she was there for four or five or six years, long enough that it has permanently affected her vision. She had another time in prison in 2005, and then there was a notorious time when she was not allowed to enter Morocco and she was deported to Lanzarote. And that was uh, 2009, I think. That was after she was returning from the United States, having been awarded by the Train Foundation she, the Civil Courage Award. It was the year after she got the Robert Kennedy Award. And she... Uh, wouldn't say that she entered Morocco as her country on her immigration card. The Moroccans confiscated her passport and sent her back to Lanzarote with the connivance of the Spanish authorities who then said they couldn't let her travel without a passport. She went on hunger strike. She wouldn't leave the airport. Lots and lots of uh, people came and... In, including uh, journalists and human rights supporters and uh, lots of other contacts from around the world, famous people who knew her, who supported her. The Spanish authorities were getting increasingly alarmed at the thing that was happening in their airport, which they liked to have looking very welcoming to tourists. Uh, that was a big a big scene. She did nearly die. She, she was on hunger strike for three or four weeks. Eventually she was more or less collapsing and Hillary Clinton finally got on the phone and said, look, you're making fools of yourself. You're doing more harm to your image than by persisting with this. Just uh, take a word from one of your friends, uh, take an advice from one of your friends and, and let her back. And uh, so she did get back, but that was uh, a major, a major event.
1: And because she's so well known, they can't keep her in. She does visit overseas and they're allowed to come back. Other lesser, people who are lesser known, if they go overseas, there's always the, the, the worry that they mightn't get back in again.
5: That's true, although they, they might get back, but then they might be arrested and, and imprisoned. And that's what happened to Brahim Dahan at another time when he and uh, seven others went to a conference in Algeria on civil resistance, on, on peaceful civil resistance. They visited the refugee camps as well and they came back and they all got imprisoned in, in Casablanca. They were known as the Casablanca Seven and they were there for quite a few years. They'd probably be allowed in, but they m- might go into prison, yeah.
1: Finished with one other activist, this time in the UK, who spoke at the, the Labour Party conference. Hadija, Hadija Malik
5: or uh, Hadija Mohammed Salem, which is actually the name of her father, her late father, uh, who I met and I knew Hadija because she stayed with me in the UK when I was living there Uh, I think she's actually still living in in uh, Spain but she somehow I haven't found out yet how she came to be contacted to attend this uh, Labour Party conference in Brighton this year and she made a fantastic speech which is available on YouTube
1: what's her background
5: now Hadijah's father was a very early Polisario supporter her mother is a nurse and she went to look after some of the children who were bombed in the war in 1975 or 76 and they met and, and they married Hadijah was born in the camps I think, they lived in the camps she lived in the camps for the first 11 years of her life it was only when her secondary schooling became an issue they decided that it would be good for her to return to Spain with her mother her father by then was a diplomat and so she was then schooled in, in uh, Spain and she went to university in Spain her mother is Basque so it was at the Basque University in um, Vitoria Gastez I think it was before she oh, it was while she was a student there her father arranged for her to come to England to improve her English. And that was one summer she came and stayed with us, did an English course. And later she got a scholarship to go and study more in Liverpool. So it's quite funny listening to her English because she's got this uh, Scouser accent of it, which um, you don't always get the... uh, the, uh, some Sahadois have a slight American accent because they've learned in, in America and often they've got very nice, uh, sort of straightforward English accents. But she wanted to be an interpreter and uh, English and Spanish were her uh, languages. But I haven't actually kept up a lot with her. I, after this, I wrote, somebody put us in touch and she told me, sent me a photograph of her three children. And uh, she's living, I think, in Spain, in Spain with Halloween and with her family. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, but she made a very good speech, I thought. And she actually spoke three times. She gave two other speeches while she was at the uh, Labour Party conference in different little subgroups or whatever.
1: Yeah. So we started off with Morocco trying to silence activists and we've spent nearly half an hour talking about activists who won't be silenced.
5: That's true, absolutely, yes. I said to her, your father would be proud of you because he, he was uh, a big activist and, uh, and he would have been very happy to know that she was speaking up for her people. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Kate.
5: Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Mm-hmm.
4: Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding, Well, volunteering to lead a Neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40 minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, so go to neighborlyride.com to contact us about volunteering.
1: A 3CR supporter. When a person says to you, and I'm sure they have, why are you spending so much time and energy in seeking to have Julian Assange released from prison in London? What do you say? I put that question to activist Jacob Gregg.
6: There are two planks to the answer to that. The first plank is that Throughout my career working on various social justice campaigns, I've never really worked on campaigns that were all that popular. I find a place where work needs to be done that people aren't taking it up on, and I'll work on that campaign until people are taking it up, then I'll move on to something else. That's a part of it. But the main part, I guess, is because... I've been a staunch supporter of WikiLeaks since day one, and it's 13 years old today. I have throughout that time been a supporter of, not just of WikiLeaks, but of Julian personally. I guess there's a part of me that likes to imagine that were I, or any of my friends and fellow activist colleagues, in a situation where we were being shat upon at a great height like Julian is, that there'll be people outside advocating on our behalf. So it's an act of solidarity. Go back
1: to that earlier time, the beginnings of WikiLeaks and your long association with Julian. Talk about that.
6: Right, well, I mean, I only met Julian a couple of times and only in passing as part of the broader peace movement. I was aware of what he was doing and who he was. In fact, I've got to say, even way before I met him, I'll go back to my time as a peace activists working against the ADEX campaigns in Canberra in the late 80s and early 90s and I remember we were talking about, I was talking to some, jeez oh I was going to say young people, I was a young person then but they were <laughs> even younger than me um, who were involved in the um, early bulletin boards of the internet and they got me hooked up to a thing called the Pegasus Bulletin Board and they were showing me what they could do talking to en- anti-Arm trade activists all over the world in real time watching the letters come up one at a time on the screen and I thought it was amazing stuff, and it was. But um, at that time we heard of a mob called the International Subversives and they'd allegedly hacked into a company called Nortel, Canadian telecommunications and defence giant, who were at the time exhibiting at the ADEX arms fairs as part of the Canadian government stalls. And um we thought it was just brilliant that this new technology that was being used, the whole digital information superhighway, which was really just starting going great guns then in the late 80s, was being used to track activists and to hassle people all over the world. You know, we were aware, we were aware, aware of the way the information was being used against Chileans. At the time, with Alan Bond's electricity and communications and all the rest of it, and we thought it was fantastic. And then we found out that it was a Melbourne bloke, allegedly, by name Mandax, Well, it just sort of, you know, I don't feel national national pride all that often, Jen. <laughs> but it makes you feel good that it's one of one of us who's doing this and making an impact. And then, of course, I kept my ear open for it. Found out that he was done for. Um, hacking into NASA and so over the years you heard different things, you know, we set up the first internet, a uh, free internet service provider in Melbourne then there was news of this um, young hacker who was working with the Victorian police to break down pedophile networks and the dark recesses of the web and you're sort of just aware of these people, so then Later on when we started the Victorian Peace Network, you know, Julian was one of the people who came along and marshalled, for example, at the big peace rallies we had there. I was aware that he was starting a leak type organization, but to be honest, I didn't give it much credence because, you know, at the time in my role I was logistics bloke at the trades hall and you could imagine every other week there was someone covered to me with this bloody amazing idea of what to do. And that's, it just went into that basket for me. But then when it started up and I heard of these leaks coming through, you know, I saw it as very central to the work we were doing against the war. Do
1: you understand how it works?
6: I don't understand the math behind it. I think there are very few people in the world who do.
1: What was his background?
6: He was studying maths at University of Melbourne. But it's sort of like, you know, you and I used to talking on radio. There's something that sort of comes natural about talking in front of a microphone, and sure people can be trained to talk in front of a microphone, but it doesn't, it'll never come naturally. And the same way, you know, you can learn and learn and learn and learn how to play a guitar. And unless you've got that whatever it is in your DNA or your RNA, you might become a very accomplished guitarist, but that's, that's about it. And, and the same thing with Julia, you know, people talk about his personality and I've never found him Well, you know, the few times I met him I never found him as as having a strange personality Any more than any other maths head Or science head that, that I've ever spoken to And I've known a few science points in my life
1: Did you follow his career over those years?
6: I followed Wikileaks and what Wikileaks was doing Wikileaks was always a bookmark on my browser when the Afghan and the Iraq Iraq war logs came out, and then the Afghan war logs and the, um, what's it called, the global intelligence files through Stratfa particularly interested me because it was a company that I was looking at for my own research. So I was always aware. And um, doing things like when Brian Boyd becomes Secretary of Trade School, I gave him a hand producing a document of, why WikiLeaks leaks was important to the union movement You know, and the way the leaks saw the collusion of companies with governments And um, tax evasion And avoiding environmental measures and all the rest of it So, to go back to when I was doing a lot of work on the anti-arm trade thing I produced a little book, Australians in Death and Destruction On the front of the page, the inside cover, it said The first step in stopping the masters of war is exposing them. And that's what, I guess, pushed my button about WikiLeaks. Because what I've always done is, well, let's face it, I've never tried to change someone's mind in this thing. All I want people to do is to know the truth. And if you think it's a good thing to use Australian tax dollars to produce weapons of indiscriminate destruction to kill Men, women, and children all over the globe, and you think we should do that? Well, that's between you and your conscience, you know. But just don't look at me and say I did it, no, has always been my bottom line.
1: But there's no protection for people like Julian, is there?
6: No, and in fact,
1: he would have known all that.
6: He knew all that. He knew all that. There's a point where Godwin's law, where eventually every argument's going to get down to Nazism, well, there's a similar, there must be a similar law where every argument is going to invoke George Orwell, and I don't often invoke Orwell, but I'm thinking of Julian as a bit of an Emmanuel Goldstein type character, except he does actually exist. We're just looking at the moment, for example, about the way Scott Morrison has been called in by Donald Trump to investigate any role Australia played in the beginnings of the Mueller investigation. And, of course, you know, Alexander Downer, as High Commissioner, was instrumental in setting that up. But because it's two factions of capitalism fighting each other, they need to have a fall guy. And the fall guy, in this case, was Julian. You know, so many things that have come out, it's like, oh, it must be Julian's fault. I mean, I'm thinking of starting a campaign where the next next time anything happens, you know, bad weather, a bridge falls over, there's a terrorist plot somewhere in the world. Oh, it must be that Assange fellow. That's almost to the point where it's coming to. And there are protections for people like that, but they've been very, very clever in attacking him to start with over the so-called you know, Swedish rape allegations, which was going to immediately remove immediate support from the worldwide left.
1: But to survive those nearly seven years in those couple of rooms mm. upstairs in a, an embassy in London... Yeah. You couldn't imagine what that would be like, could you? I, I,
6: I could not imagine, mate. Two rooms, or well, for a big part of it, it was one room. Basically no sunshine. And for a while under the... Um, under the Ecuadorian government of Rafael Correa. He was treated reasonably well, but even um, his government had a lot of pressure put on him by the United States. And um, But then when Marino came in, he was almost a self-imposed prisoner. He was in solitary. We know now that he was spied upon 24 hours a day. All his visitors were monitored. They even apparently put bugs in the women's toilet in the embassy. So that, um, you know, his lawyers like Jen Robinson, for example, going in there to make a, have a quiet conversation with someone was all, all bugged. I mean, it's reminiscent of Alexander Downer ordering the bugs into the two Maurice cabinet rooms, you know.
1: And the support from Australia, virtually what? nil, the Australian but government. Nothing. Over the years.
6: Nothing. We're offering him consular support is what they're saying which is is nothing. They're treating him as if he were just another prisoner who was picked up for, you know, a shoplifting or a drug charge or, or something under the criminal code. That is not the case, and it's never been the case.
1: And where he's being put now shows it's not the case.
6: Well, he's in Belmarsh, and Belmarsh has um, been called, you know, not by me, but by the BBC, Britain's Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, there are reports about excessive violence at Belmarsh over the years, and it's been the subject of government inquiries as to kind of atrocities that go on there. And he was put there, mind you, for the charge of skipping bail. And even that charge, he he skipped his bail because he sought asylum as a political refugee because he knew that once he was in the UK so-called justice system, they would start ext- Proceedings to extradite him to the United States of America And they said no, 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 no That's just fabrication, that's just paranoia, delusional ramblings And then as soon as they've got him inside They start extradition proceedings to the United States So it's, he's been proven correct
1: Dreadful time for his family as well
6: Yeah, Have you is. met his father? Yeah, his, yeah his, his brother Yeah, his brother went over to see him a few weeks back His mother. His mother. His mother's got her own issues with her her current family, his illness in the family and all that. She's doing what she can, but she's also, you know, it must be terrible for her. And and John's doing what he can. He's travelling the world at the moment. I think he was in Berlin yesterday giving a speech at the Brandenburg Gate. And it's it's just unfathomable to think of someone, you know, as I say, I hardly knew him. But imagine someone you knew, you know, we said Jock Palfriman over mm-hmm. in Bulgaria was in a similar situation, you know. But to have somebody you know locked away and you know that they're being held illegally, where, you know, no less than the United Nations has been saying he should be released immediately. And they're just saying, nah, nah, and then you point out, you know, and the irony of it is, is that there are leaked documents showing the US involvement with the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom telling Sweden not to drop the charges, we need you to keep the charges. And so they've got him in there basically for the non-crime of leaking documents. And the documents that are being leaked show that he's being held at the behest of the United States through the collusion of the United Kingdom. It's a very, very circular argument. I mean, it'd be... It'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic you couldn't write this shit
1: there seems to be a lot more public support from him now is it too late in a sense
6: it's never too late let's 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 be honest and um but it is it's um he's very sick his trial for extradition is in february
1: he should have been released weeks ago
6: He should have been released weeks ago. Yeah, the only reason they're keeping him now is not for bail, not for anything that did or didn't happen in Sweden, not for anything other than awaiting the United States to get its paperwork in order for a trial for extradition where he's facing 175 years on 18 charges. That's the only reason he's being kept. And that that really begs the question, you know. It's like he didn't break an English law. He didn't break an Australian law. He didn't break a Swedish law. He broke, allegedly, they're claiming, he broke laws under the Espionage Act, which haven't been used for years in the United States.
1: World War One,
6: wasn't it? World War I, yeah. He's been kept in England. So it's like, does the United States, is the United States and Australia and the United Kingdom, and let's face it, this is the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, are we saying that anybody who is a citizen of any country who operates anywhere in the world can be held by the US government and its cronies for charges in the United States. I mean, just imagine, for example, just imagine, for example, you know, it's illegal to drink alcohol in Saudi Arabia. We all know they do. It's illegal to drink alcohol in Saudi Arabia like it's illegal to smoke pot in Australia. But imagine if the Saudi government tried to hold someone in Jordan or Oman for the crime of breaking the alcohol restriction or any other of the stupid, meaningless crimes. That's what we've got to. There'd be public outrage. But that's when it's America, when it's Julian Assange, it seems to be normalised, which is the the big problem we've got here, normalising the jailing of dissent. It's not too long a bow to draw between Julian being kept in Belmarsh and Peter Dutton saying climate change activists ought to be thrown in prison. What we're talking about here is the beginnings of the fascist policy of jailing people who dissent. If nothing else, um, Julian, regardless of what you think of Julian, regardless of what you think of WikiLeaks, is this what we want to see in the world? Do we want to see a situation where any government in the world can hold someone for leaking information, for dissenting?
1: What to be done?
6: What's to be done? At the moment, what we're hoping to happen is for the Australian Government to request him to be brought home. I don't really have a lot of hope in the current Australian Government or in the alternate one, to be quite frank. And um, part of that is because Julian was behind a whole lot of leaks exposing both Labor and Liberal Party politicians to be the toady scum they are, you know, and only in their own words. But if and when there is a change in either the United States policy or in the British government, it would make it easier for the British government if Australia was asking to have him back. And that's about the only hope we've got at the moment, that a change in the British government or something happening in Britain and anything could be happening in Britain right now. It's a a circus. We don't know when there's going to be election or what. We don't know if there's still going to be in Europe next month at this point. So we don't know what's happening. So what we want to do is create an environment where he can be allowed to come back to Australia. And apart from that, the other thing that could be done is um, send him letters of support, send him solidarity, because a friend of mine visited him a few weeks ago, stressed to me how happy he is that people in Australia are doing actions in support of him. She said the, act, the Australian actions are the only thing that are bringing a smile to his face, knowing, as you can imagine, being locked away there, your people on, back home are have it let go of you you know it doesn't matter to him the italians don't like him or the french well probably matters but not as much as, as as his own people because he he is a part of it and the other thing i think is to regardless of what happens to Juliet, is to make sure that whatever happens to him hasn't been in vain the amount of people i speak to that have been quick to condemn Julian, have been quick to condemn WikiLeaks for all sorts of things, like conspiring with Russia to put Trump there for the Swedish allegations, for everything else, have never gone to WikiLeaks.org. And so I say to, you know, the the activists who are working on Adani, I say, go to WikiLeaks.org, there's a search box at the top of the page and it's created by the best computer nerds in the world, and type in Adani and look at all the shit they've been up to over the last 30 years, going back to the leaks from the Carter administration when they were setting up power plans in Iran and the dodgy deals they were doing there. Look up climate change. See all the leaks that WikiLeaks exposed about what was really being said behind closed doors during the climate conferences. It was through WikiLeaks that we got the actual text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that led us campaign about that. So I guess the bottom line is... Whatever happens to Julian, the prognosis is not good. Let's not let it be in vain. Let's not just say, oh, yeah, okay, so we know that Bill Shorten did this or Scott Morrison did that. We know that Adani do this and this person lied on climate change. And So what? And that also, of course, goes to Ed Snowden who exposed all the... All the um, intelligence connections around the Five Eyes, um, and I know that's what's that's what's breaking their hearts at the moment. The fact that they lost it all to expose this. In the knowledge, it might be a bit naive in hindsight, but in the thought that if the public knew what was really going on, they would do something about it. And what's really breaking their hearts is the public now has information as to what's going on. A lot of people listen to 3CR are activists, and a lot of people have been involved in a lot of campaigns where they expose government corruption, and they expose what's really going on behind the scenes. And to, to greater and lesser extents, we've all felt that sinking feeling when we published the truth about what's going on in little things, like, I don't want to belittle any campaign, but on local issues, like the birthing trees, for example, and things get steamrolled and gone over anyway. And I think the important thing is, to, is that, you know, Julian said during a visit by a friend of ours last month that the, it's not about me. The important thing is the work, that the work continues. People should also know that WikiLeaks is continuing to publish documents, mm-hmm. continuing to expose the truth of what's happening, and I've got to say is the only... Publishing or major publishing organisation in the world that has never had to retract a single story
1: And as you said they might be able to shut down one person but they're not going to shut down the organisation
6: They can't shut down the organisation but what they do is they, um, they scare in journalists A couple of weeks ago I was in Sydney working with um, a journalist James Rickardson um, who was in Cambodian prison for months to do a little bit of an action outside a media freedom, press freedom association, Peter Grester's organisation in um, Barangaroo Towers, you know, where nobody, nobody was allowed to mention Julian Assange. And even people like Rickardson, who'd spent time in jail, was not allowed to go there, was not invited to attend because he would raise the issue of Julian Assange.
1: What is it with Peter Grester? Why aren't they allowed to mention Julian Assange?
6: I think there's been a, almost a total blackout, a self-imposed journalistic blackout on support for Julian. Like Peter made that quote that he wasn't a journalist. Mm. He's since... Retracted? Well... Sort of? Sort of. He said he's part of the journalist ecosystem. You know, which is crazy when... Um, when Ricketson and I and a few others attempted to enter their conference, they said, as you're part of the conference, I said, we're part of the conference ecosystem. But no, they won't recognise him as a journalist. I mean, he's won Walkley Awards, he's been a member of the MEAA for years, the MEAA recognises him as journalism. It's not like being a heart surgeon or even a mechanic. There's no qualification that says you are, you are a journalist. But I think with Peter... Uh, Look, to be honest, I think it was an attack of the giant ego. He is the journalist that everybody needs to worry about who was in jail. And let's face it, we supported him, the Australian government supported him while he was in an Egyptian jail because he was the kind of journalist who pretty much all the time ran the Australian government line. He wasn't what you'd call an uh, investigative journalist. You know, there's the, there's the quote that,
1: he wasn't a threat.
6: He wasn't a threat. He wasn't a threat. He was, he, so, which is probably why they arrested the bagger to start with, because he was pushing the western line, quite frankly. But yeah, he was, he, he was always a mainstream journalist. He, he was a press release writer. I, it, I guess is how I call him, press release for the, for the capitalist west. You know, there, there are people, you know, people like, you know, Mary Costaquitas was, I don't believe was there. I saw her later on that week yeah but they talk about press freedom but the other thing is they're all aware that they want to disassociate themselves from Julian because if it's Julian today it could be us next week and then there's the thing about what they're exposing many journalists see themselves as being at the front line of truthful information and what Wikileaks has done was expose the mainstream media for what it is and so that's embarrassing For the same reason, a whole lot of Labor leaders and union leaders don't like grassroots activist lefties because that's the image they try to project about themselves. So when someone else does what they claim to be doing, it makes them look bad. And I think that's what's behind Grester's and um, the other press freedom council's dropping of his case.
1: So in conclusion... Letter writing
6: Letter writing You can write to Julian Julian Assange Date of birth Belmarsh Prison As date of birth is the 3rd of July 1971 That's the way you get to him But if you look up Mail to Julian If you go to defend defendwikileaks.org um, It'll say have all the details And it'll also tell you what you need to include If you'd like to hear back from him They held up his mail for a month, but there's a massive backlog because, as you can imagine, um, they go through all his mail with a fine-tooth comb. You can write him a letter. You can go to, well, in Melbourne, you can go to a Facebook page or a Twitter account, Melbourne for WikiLeaks, find out when we're doing things, what actions you can take. But the main thing you can do, and I'm assuming, Jan, that the vast majority of your listeners sit around with friends of ours and theirs and we're all of like mind and a lot of those people are still undecided about Julian not just because of Sweden but because of the claim that he put Trump there and he's a Russian stooge and the rest of it and I just say, as Julian would say don't take my word for it don't take WikiLeaks' word for it go online, do the research yourself find the other arguments learn the truth and talk to your friends about it because it's up to us, it's up to people like us in the progressive left in Melbourne to start normalising support for Julian because what's happening at the moment is his arbitrary detention and his assumed criminality is normalised. We need to change that round so that we, we normalise that we support Julian here in Melbourne. You've
1: been listening to Jacob Greck and... You can hear more of Jacob every Friday, 5pm, with his program, A Friday Rave.
0: Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But... Those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads, and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the inquiry into drug driving reform petition 117 a 3cr supporter hello i am gabriel gatte 3cr is like a souffle a challenge to make but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR.
1: Last week I played the first part of an interview with psychiatric nurse Sarah Ball who accompanied Kalia Kelly on her recent visit to Afghanistan her second visit to Afghanistan. Earlier in the year Sarah was in Iran and we heard about that last week. Now she continues her time in Afghanistan. This time was it mainly children that you were engaging with or or adults as well?
7: Most of the time uh, Kathy and I are staying with the Afghan Peace Volunteers which is a group that was founded Shoot, I don't know the exact date, but I'm just going to say about 10 years ago, to build community in Afghanistan for forming around the principles of active nonviolence, permaculture and green living, and equality, including gender equality, which in Afghanistan is a problem. So many of the people, many of the volunteers, almost all of them are late teens, early 20s. Which is kind of fun because it, it just everybody is so passionate and lively and excited and and hopeful, and with all these emotions and all these ideas, they really do also get a lot done and in fact, one of the differences I noticed is that there were more volunteers than there were two years ago, and the projects really seemed to be uh, moving along, so that was very exciting to see i I can't tell you how strange and exciting it is in a country torn by war where there's a huge rate of unemployment. I was told when I was there there was something like fifty to sixty percent and everyone you speak to as family members and loved ones and friends who have died violently that you you meet with this community that has just said, right now, we're going to start living as we think people should live. And they do. And they reach out to the community and try to spread the word and promote nonviolence. And it's all of these very young people. And speaking of children, one of the main projects that the Afghan Peace Volunteers do is teach a street kid school, because in Kabul especially, um, with so many families that are refugees, there are many very small children working on the streets, because that's the only way that their families can earn money. So. They are introduced to the volunteers into the street kids' school, and every Friday they come and are taught several different classes, including classes in nonviolence. And in return, their families are given a monthly supply of food. So they're often, you know, small children on Fridays and youth and young people all through the week. So it's
3: a very exciting place to visit.
1: Your profession at home is a psychiatric nurse what strikes you about both the mental and physical well-being of the children and the young adults you met? You know what, that's,
7: it's an interesting question because I, I was talking with Hakeem, who is the person who, one of the coordinators of the Afghan Peace Volunteers, and he often tells us about you know, many of the problems that young people have because related to trauma that they've experienced or the constant anxiety and depression from not having a job, not having money, worried about their them or their loved ones being killed. And I said, you yeah, know, of course I believe you and that makes sense, but everyone seems so welcoming and friendly. And he said, well, you know, they that's part of the culture to be hospitable and friendly and Especially to you as a foreigner, but there's a lot. There are a lot of underlying problems. One of the young people we met with is a young man named Khalid, who whose family from a very one of the very dangerous provinces that, you know, many parts of it are overrun with the Taliban. And he himself uh, told us has had several encounters with the Taliban where his life could very easily have been taken, and he got away in a good time there's the constant threat of death of everyone he knows around him um, when he travels from the province he's in to Kabul there is always the threat that the van he's in could be overtaken or you know that the van could be you know, shot up by a US drone mistaking them for Taliban and he told me that he's a bit I can't remember the exact phrase he used he's a bit messed up from it and he finds it difficult to concentrate, and he said several times that he was feeling sad and that he wasn't feeling well. So it seems, I think he's, he's 21 years old, a very, very smart young man who's running the one of the anti-war groups, the Afghan peace volunteers, but he really doesn't know what will happen to his family, what will happen to him, and this constant anxiety of not knowing what will happen and not having peace and calm in which to pursue what you're doing is really wearing and constantly on your
1: mind. Can any of those envisage a future without war? You know, many of them are
7: very, very hopeful in that regard. That's one of the constant themes of discussion with the Afghan peace volunteers. And I will, like I said, discuss it constantly. They have very serious conversations. But it's, it's kind of like a, really like a safe space, like we talk about here in the U.S. sometimes, where everybody is free to give whatever opinion, you know, he or she may have, and they do, and discussing, you know, whether nonviolence could work, discuss uh, talking about Gandhi, talking about, you know, the president and the Taliban and their families and many of them do end up saying that yes, they think there will be a time without war. I think many of them were saying that it might be in one or two generations. A lot of them say that it won't happen in their lifetime. But I think that there is the idea that especially in a country without any visibly good options, just saying for yourself and your community, I'm going to start practicing nonviolence right now and to help people as much as I can will be is the only way out and is also very attractive and will hopefully attract many more people that way. And it has spread.
1: Did you have any conversations with young women or girls? Very many. In fact it's it's funny to me being an outsider
7: to the culture of course Um, having grown up in the U.S., that many of the people leading the street kid school and the groups are young women. And I can't speak to exactly why that is. I would love to know more about that. But really, in a country which, when you walk down the street in Kabul, you know, the, the women really don't even... Glance at the men when they're walking down the street. It, it just, it feels very repressive. Suddenly you enter the rooms of the Afghan peace volunteers and their women having equal conversations with the men and giving lectures on nonviolence or dottery or English or math to a, a mixed gender group of young students. And most remarkably to me, there was a young woman of, in her early twenties who has been with Afghan Peace Volunteers for several years now and who has tremendous grace and poise. Kathy and I often talk about it. Um, she's the kind of person who's able to be leading class with a bunch of, you know, young children of five and six, and with one look, they'll all be quiet when they won't listen to anybody else. But she was able to talk to the parents of the street kids. And its I was there, and I didn't understand much of it because Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to learn Dari yet. I'm hoping to learn a little. But it was about one third uh, of the parents were the mothers and two thirds were the fathers. And she was leading the conversation and telling them what they had to do to, you know, get their monthly food supply. And it really seemed as if they respected her and she had the control of the room.
1: What about the younger children? Did you have any conversations with the actual young children?
7: Uh, no, you know, and that was a part of, that was a problem with the trip. Two years ago, I was able to sit in with the street kids school on Friday. This time, I was visiting a friend of mine, Larguna, who, lives, who used to be with Ds and now lives in Bamiyan, another province. So, Kathy uh, was at the street kids school, but unfortunately, I wasn't. One of the problems with the... With the younger children is that really, for the most part, they don't speak much English, but they, so my experience was of uh, two years ago was of sitting in in the classroom and watching these mostly young women teaching them, and there, you know, might be 20 women, uh, I'm sorry, 20 children in the class, and they really did seem to be really engaged in the learning. Um, you know, you would have the Half of the, you know, the men, I'm sorry, the the boys sitting on one side and the girls sitting on the other. And, you know, some of them would be helping each other to study. And they really seem quite engaged. And they love, of course, the other different projects that they do. They used to have a a bicycle team, one for men and one for women, I believe. And it's very unheard of for a group of women to ride bicycles. But the, the kids loved that. But unfortunately, I did not get to actually speak with them.
1: Tell me about your time outside Kabul meeting with your friends.
7: So I was with, I was so happy to be able to get to go, and I really hope to return. Zarguna is a a woman of the mid-20s, 25 or 26, who worked with Afghan peace volunteers for something like, seven or eight years, and is now back in the province of Bamyan, where she grew up, which is one of the only two other relatively peaceful provinces in uh, Afghanistan. Yarguna told me that the Taliban has been clear of the city for about ten years, before which the Taliban had stormed to the city, killed most of the males in the city. In retaliation, the U.S. leveled the city with bombs, so they really had to rebuild it from nothing. And this is an area in which, uh, which famously has the Buddhas, which were bombed by the Taliban, and many caves in which the people of the country hid when the Taliban were overrunning the city. Zarguna was there, and two of her friends, who had also been with Afghan Sikh volunteers, and we all stayed together, and as I said earlier, we sat around and talked most of the time. Zarguna is currently studying permaculture and hoping to teach it. And she herself has a, a really lovely garden and was telling me all about permaculture. I'm not really a, a green plant person, so um, what I what I touch, I kill. So everything was new to me. But she is hoping to teach classes in the university in Banyan and ultimately to have her own farm to practice her permaculture, which would really be fabulous. One thing that she was doing, which... I hadn't heard before and I was astounded by. She herself formed a group of women from the village um, in a village about 40 minutes outside of Bamian, so quite isolated, a very rural village, where I think none of the people there really are familiar with nonviolence or permaculture or any of these things, but she had wanted to start a kind of a mutual aid society among the women who were often isolated because of the discrimination against women. And she ended up getting about 14 or 15 of these women, mostly in their 50s and 60s, together. And every week they get together and talk about their problems. They move from, you know, to different houses, of the women in the group. And they all have a pool of money. They bring 10, I forget the currency of in uh, Afghan, Afghans, I think. I'm blanking out on it now. But they put 10 a week in and every, it's very strict. Every woman has to do it. So if some woman has a project she wants to do or a health concern, she can take from that money. So, I mean, that was remarkable to me from, you know, a village life where all the women were, you know, staying within their own homes. From nothing, Zarzuna gets together, a community of women, to, for solidarity, to talk about their problems, and to start their own, you know, simple banking system this is what people are doing in Afghanistan now.
1: And I'd imagine you had a few meals with them, a communal meals?
7: I was with, I ate with Zarguna and her friends, uh, Katara and Marwa, and we, we were at Zarguna's family's home, and unfortunately, they didn't, they didn't let me help with the cooking, I think, because I would have been very clumsy. I'm not the best cook, and, you know, they had it down pat, but, three times a day they would go down to the kitchen and they would make an afghan dinner and there's a i think it's called a samovar that where you put the make a fire right under it and then so they're constantly pouring tea and heating the water for us to drink because the water's not safe to drink while it's cold and then we would all eat together in the afghan way there's a kind of like a now a plastic mat that you lay out that has the remnants of the bread in it and you put the pot of food or two pots of food in front and everybody sits around the mat and eats together with the bread and sometimes spoons and drinks green tea and continues to talk. It's really it's really lovely. Every everything done is a a communal experience.
1: And where are the children when all this is going on?
7: Zarguna herself lives in the the family house, but it's in a, I don't know how you'd say it, not like a compound. Often, and my understanding is that in the villages in Afghanistan, you'll have two or three families living together in separate rooms, but sharing a a yard with a, a mud wall around it. So there are children from the other families sometimes often helping with the chores or walking around. But... Because Arguna and her friends were the only ones in the house then, we were the only ones there.
1: Did you find out if the children are able to go to school?
7: That was something Arguna talked about quite a lot. She said she was so happy to say that she's found that recently the children are starting to go to school in Bamyan, especially the young women. We went on a long walk to see the Buddhas the first day I was in Bamyan, and we walked on the mud paths or dirt paths alongside the stream, where women washed their clothes. And there are all these young women walking opposite us, coming back from school, carrying their notebooks, going back home. And that's when they started talking to me about it. She said, 10 years ago, you would never have seen that. The parents would have all said, um, you know, oh, why was the woman studying? She's, you know, just going to have to get married anyway, and wouldn't have let them. But there's started to be some kind of a social change in which it's much more accepted now. Now, Bamyan is uh, one of the larger cities in Afghanistan, so I can't speak for the villages, um, but I know literacy rates have increased quite a lot. I wish I had looked up those figures beforehand, and I really don't want to hazard a guess, but there has been a lot of improvement, just as there has been in Iran in the past 50 years or so.
1: I know you took some notes beforehand. Is, Is there anything else that I've missed that you'd like to talk about?
7: One of the things that I think is easily forgotten that I always try to remember myself that Hakeem, one of the coordinators of the Afghan Peace Volunteers, often talks about is the goal is self sufficiency. So often if you're somebody from America or a country in the West coming over to visit Afghanistan, it's easy to for people to think, Oh, they're going over to, to help the people there, you know, to lift them up out of their Poverty or, you know uh, Discrimination or whatever it is But that's really not the case Of all, it's really us Going to, and this really is True, to learn from them And to form relationships with them Because if If you have people from the West Going over to, quote, help the people There The youth there are just going to feel like, well We can't do it on our own anyway You know, what's, what's our worth? But Hoki's point is always that you have what you need to make a community of nonviolence. So the goal is to live well now and to be self-sufficient, with the help of permaculture and with the help of the community around you. So voices goes to observe and bring back word to the people in the United States. And both times that I've come back, I, I always come back, thinking, you know, on fire, thinking, you know, well, what, what can I do to be more like this in the U.S., where it's ostensibly so much easier to do what you want. And I'm still working out that question, and I think we should always all be having it in mind. But self-sufficiency and living the way you think you should right now, starting now, is always my takeaway.
1: You're saying self-sufficiency, but it's the the united states makes it very difficult for the people to be self-sufficient with their continually wars in the middle east
7: absolutely especially when you know i'm sure you heard that i think it was last week that 30 people who were nut harvesters were accidentally killed by the drones and this is i mean this is really common i actually just looked up a Something from the BBC showing that 475 civilians have been killed in the war just in August alone. So imagine every month. One example of self-sufficiency that Akeem and the Afghan peace volunteers gave was that there are Afghans who, either in the country or who live abroad, who have enough money or enough to, to give... To help provide things like the food supplies to the family of the street kid school or the help of a different project. So that would be money from Afghans going to Afghans. So one Afghan helping one Afghan rather than somebody in the U.S., you know, just giving a bunch of money. So there are, yes, it isn't incredibly difficult, but there are ways to do it which, which they're working towards. You'll be back. Oh God, yes, I very much hope to. Um, I'm hoping in about a, a year, and I'm. I, I've told many people this, so I suppose I really have to do it. But I'm hoping to learn some Dari because I always feel bad. If, you know, everybody has to translate for me. So that's my goal.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much, Jen. And that was Sarah Ball from Voices for Creative Nonviolence speaking about her time in Afghanistan. That's all for me for today. Back next Tuesday at 4. Bye for now.